0: This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hello, welcome to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. I'm your host, Robbie Lashua, and today I'm solo. Obviously, if you're watching on YouTube, you know Tyler is not here in the room. He is on a much-needed vacation. I'm happy for him. He's living his life with his wife and his uh, extended family and stuff. So we miss you, Tyler, but he'll be back next week to continue our series on New Testament reliability. So today, we're going to get into some, I think, awesome evidence for why we can trust what the New Testament says. But before we do that, we want to do a coffee tip because this is Christ Culture and Coffee. So the coffee tip for today is promoting a really cool company that makes really great coffee and it's called Black Rifle Coffee Company. So uh, last week I had some of my really good friends uh, text me and they said, hey, uh, we dropped off a bag of Black Rifle Coffee on your doorstep because we got extra in our shipment. So we want you to try it and see if you like it. So uh, I get home and my wife shows me this, uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Blackbeard's Delight. It's a dark roast. It's it's really good. I like it a lot. I've been drinking it uh, for the past few days, and uh, I wanted to promote them because this company is really interesting. It's veteran-owned, uh, and they hire a whole ton of veterans uh, to to work at this company. It's a really cool place. It seems like the community there is awesome, and they really want to give veterans a um, – a role in their company when, when they come in and, uh, start working there. So you should check out their website for more info about it and to order some uh, coffee for yourself. They have a whole bunch of different kinds of roast, uh, decaf, all this different kind of stuff. Uh, but you can go to blackriflecoffee.com and you can check them out. But I would recommend uh, blackbeard's delight. It's a really good dark. If you like dark, it's a really good, uh, blend for that. So shout out to black rifle coffee company, uh, for, uh, giving my friends a free bag that they gave me. So there we go. We all win. All right. Well, hey, let's dive into the topic for today. So we're talking through, is the New Testament reliable? Can we trust what the New Testament says? And last week we talked about how there are certain criteria that historians look for when they are trying to figure out events that happened in the past. And these criteria are, they want multiple independent sources, they want these sources to be early reports instead of, you know, written way later after the fact. Uh, They would love it if there were eyewitness reports, because then you have from somebody who was actually there. Uh, If there's embarrassing details in the accounts, it adds validity to it, and if there's enemies who agree with the accounts, it adds validity to it, because typically uh, people who disagree on important things uh, don't usually agree. So if they do agree and they both say something happened, it most likely happened because there's no other explanation for why they would both be saying something happened. Uh, So last week we looked at the multiple independent sources aspect of the New Testament, and we also looked at how early the reports were right? And we talked about how how that uh, creed in First Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, probably dates somewhere between six months to three years after the death of Jesus, which means Christians were saying Jesus died and rose again after he was buried, and he appeared to a whole bunch of people. They were saying this in the town where this supposedly happened, six months to three years after uh, Jesus rose from the dead, which is an extremely early report. Uh, For today, we want to press into the claim that eyewitnesses wrote the New Testament, all right? So is this actual eyewitness testimony— Or is it made up later, or is it second, third, fourth, fifth hand information that people heard that they wrote down? So there's a few different ways to uh, look at the eyewitness testimony, but I think it's important for us to start off with saying that the New Testament writers claimed that this was eyewitness testimony, okay? So I want to read a few verses to you to show you that this is what they're claiming. doesn't make it true, but it's what they said. So, Luke 1 1 through 2 says this Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, so this is the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And he says, Listen, a lot of people have tried to compile accounts of these things as they were handed down from the beginning from eyewitnesses. So he's claiming that he got his story from the eyewitnesses. It was handed down to him from the eyewitnesses, okay? So we have to say that Luke is um, secondhand eyewitness reporting, right? because he's using sources. He talks to other people. Um, There's a lot of speculation on who it was he talked to, but a lot of people think that Luke actually interviewed Jesus' mom because he has all of this birth narrative stuff about Jesus in the first few chapters that isn't in Matthew, and uh, he says things like, uh, Mary pondered these things in her heart. And you go, well, how do you know that? He probably interviewed Jesus' mom. He says that he interviewed a lot of people and that he spoke with eyewitnesses. So, the Gospel of Luke claims to be a report from the eyewitnesses. Second Peter 1.16, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter claims that he was an eyewitness. He claims, and he says, we, right, the disciples, we saw this. He's including himself as an eyewitness. And then in the Gospel of John, John 1 verse 14 says, "...and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth." Okay, so he's saying that the flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, plural, right? He's he's including himself in that. And then he says, and we saw his glory. So John is claiming that this is eyewitness account too, by including himself as being one of the people who saw his glory and whom he dwelt among. So the New Testament documents, um, a lot of them, I would say almost all of them are eyewitness testimony of the events that they're recording. Matthew was a disciple and he rec- he wrote the book of Matthew. John was a disciple. He writes the book of the Gospel of John, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he writes Revelation. Peter was a disciple, right? Most believe that Mark is Peter's account as written down by his friend John Mark. So Peter's behind the Gospel of Mark, and he writes 1st and 2nd Peter. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus when he was alive. At least we, we can't know if he was. There's no claims to that. Um, and it doesn't seem like Luke was around uh, throughout Luke, the gospel, and throughout the accounts of Acts until the end because he changes um, how he's writing from third person to second person. He's including himself in the we passages. You see, and then we saw this, and then we did this. So it seems like he joins the story Um, halfway-ish through the, the book of Acts, which is interesting. But he claims that he interviewed eyewitnesses. So we have a whole bunch of eyewitness testimony. James is written by Jesus half-brother, right? James. Uh, Jude is written by Jesus' half-brother, Jude. Hebrews, we don't know who it was written by. I think it was probably Barnabas. I could be wrong on that. Uh, The epistles of Paul, Paul was around during the time of Christianity starting. Uh, He claims that Jesus appeared and showed up to him. And so we have accounts from guys who were there during the time uh, the things that they write about happened. So, The claim is they were eyewitnesses. Now, how can we test that? What kinds of evidence do we need to look for to say, okay, were you really an eyewitness? Well, this is where we look inside the texts of the New Testament to see if there are clues or if there are things that we can ascertain about them being eyewitnesses from the what's called internal evidence of the text. So I want to walk you through a few things that I think point to these having to be eyewitness testimony written close to the time that they happened. The first thing uh, I want to talk about is what's called anonymity for protection. Anonymity for protection. There are places in the Gospels where they don't tell you uh, certain people's names. uh, And one of the reasons we believe they don't name certain people is because they were still alive and they were still trying to protect them from being indicted with a crime. Let me read to you an example of this. So, um... In uh, Jesus' arrests, uh, you remember how uh, Judas is coming uh, with the guards. They're going to arrest Jesus. And in Matthew 26, 51, it says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Okay. In Matthew, we are not told which disciple it was who takes out his sword and hacks off a dude's ear, okay? You know what? Mark says this very same thing, that one of the disciples pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of this servant. Luke says the same thing, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of those name who the disciple was. We are left with an anonymous disciple cutting off somebody's ear, It isn't until the Gospel of John that we're told which disciple it was. Let me read to you. John 18.10 says, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Okay, so we don't get the slave's name in the other epistles or the other Gospels. And we definitely are not told that it was Peter who did this. So the question becomes, why do Matthew, Mark, and Luke not name Peter? But John exposes him and says, hey, it was totally Peter who did this, probably because they were trying to protect Peter from getting in trouble with the, with the Sanhedrin, with the guys who sent the guards. Think about this. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written when we believe they were, right, 50s, maybe early 60s, Peter's probably still alive at that time. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not want to implicate him in a violent crime. Do you see that? They're trying to protect him from getting in trouble. They were already in a lot of trouble, but they're trying to protect him from getting in more trouble with the religious authorities. So why do you think John names him? Well, remember, uh, a lot of people believe John was written into the 90s. There's some arguments that he was written before 70 A.D., but most people believe he was written in in he wrote the Gospel of John in the early to mid 90s. By that time, Peter's already dead. There's no need to protect him. There's no need to keep him anonymous, and so John lets us know who it was that cut off the high priest here. Plus, he names who the the servant of the high priest. Was. So this, I think, screams authentic. That why else would you leave out that detail of who it was unless you were trying to protect them because they were still alive, which means that these books were written early on by people who were eyewitnesses, who knew that Peter was still alive. There's another one of these when you look at the woman who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume the week before he's killed. Jesus explicitly says, Remember her, remember this great deed, but we're not told who she is until the Gospel of John tells us who she is. So anonymity for protection is a little piece of evidence that these were written by people close to the time period uh, that the stories happened in, all right? Another thing is that we have a lot of embarrassing details in the account, which makes us think it's authentic. The idea behind this is you wouldn't make up embarrassing details about yourself if you're trying to convince people to join your cause or follow your cult, right? It's a horrible idea to make up embarrassing details. And the Gospels are filled with embarrassing details. The Epistles are filled with embarrassing details. I mean, you think about 1 Corinthians and and you're telling me there's a church where people are getting drunk at communion. There's a guy who's sleeping with his dad's wife, and nobody says it's a big deal. Like, it's just chaos. That's embarrassing. That is not a way to get people to join your cause. That is kind of a red flag to say, I don't know if I really want to be a part of the church at Corinth. They're crazy, right? You think about in the Gospels, how there's all these embarrassing details. I mean, we have stuff in the Gospels where Jesus calls his head disciple Satan. Remember that? He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why would you write that about yourself if you're trying to convince people to follow your new movement? We also see Jesus' brothers do not believe him. Now remember, uh, by the time that the Gospels are written, Jesus' brother James is already the head of the church in Jerusalem. If you were making up the stories, why would you say that James didn't believe in his brother, thought he was crazy, told him to uh, basically, hey, go over and let them kill you where they're trying to kill you. Why would you write that stuff about the head of the church in Jerusalem? Doesn't make a lot of sense unless it happened and you're recording accurately what occurred. You have Jesus being denied by Peter three times after saying, I'll never leave you. All these other disciples may flake out on you, Jesus, but I won't, I will go with you to the death. And then he denies him three times in his greatest hour of need. Why would you make those things up about yourself? It doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. There's another detail I think is really bizarre Out of place doesn't make sense in the gospels and it comes from mark chapter 14 verses 51 through 52 so this is in the garden of gethsemane when jesus is getting arrested they come up you know peter who who we don't know it's peter from mark but a disciple tries to cut off the ear uh, does cut off the ear of the the servant of the high priest jesus heals this servant is arrested and then mark 14 51 through 52 says this A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? Like, this seems so bizarre and so out of place. Why, if you're making up a story about the betrayal of who you claim is the Son of God, Why would you tack on two verses at the end of that account about some kid who's following and then he runs away and the guards pull off his clothes and he escapes naked? It makes no sense. What is this? Most commentators believe that this is Mark saying, I was there at the arrest that was me. A lot of people believe that the the Last Supper was had in the upper room of Mark's mother's house, that he was around, and that when the disciples and Jesus left for Gethsemane, he was in bed because it was late at night, but he took his sheet and he followed along after them. They'd say this is him validating that he was part of the story as, as an eyewitness to the story. Now, let's say that that's not the case. What makes sense of these two verses being in the Bible? It's so pointless. There's no reason for this to be told other than if it actually happened and he's wanting to recount actual history. It's a bizarre thing to put in there. So the the embarrassing details in the Gospels lend themselves to the authenticity of the Gospels. So that's an important uh, point that we we want to look to. Now, there's another internal evidence that helps us think these were written by eyewitnesses close to the time period that they are recording. And one of the reasons for that is that the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had to have been written prior to 70 AD. Uh, And here's why. Uh, 70 AD is a very important date because it was in 70 AD that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire, okay? The Jews had been uh, causing uh, rebellious uh, fights against the Roman Empire, and Rome brought down an army and started just destroying Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, they ripped and tore apart the temple, as Jesus prophesied and had predicted, Well, there's reasons to believe that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And here's a couple of reasons why. So in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, Peter is questioned about whether Jesus pays the two drachma tax that was collected for maintaining the temple right? And you remember Jesus tells Peter to go get a fish and then in the fish will be the coin and you pay the tax with the coin. So Peter goes and pays it for him and for Jesus. So what's the point of that story in the gospel? Isn't the idea that even Jesus paid the temple tax, so hey, maybe we should pay the temple tax? Make sense? Why would you need to include that story if the temple's destroyed and no one's paying a temple tax to it anymore. You see, people read this and go, this must have been written prior to it. Otherwise, this story has no point whatsoever, no application in the lives of people reading it. And it, it would be a waste of scroll space to write this. But if it had written, been written prior to the destruction of the temple, it makes sense. That's another reason we think these were written close to the time period that they happened in by people who were actually there. Another thing that you see in Matthew is that Sadducees are mentioned a lot. When I was a kid, I'd always confuse Pharisees, Sadducees, scribe, whatever. It's all the same. It's not all the same. Um, the Sadducees were a group of people who were kind of plain political um uh, nice with the Roman empire. They were Jewish, but they were kind of secular Jewish. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, only the, the law, the books of Moses. That's all they thought was authoritative. Uh, they threw out Psalms and they threw out uh, the prophets. Uh, they also didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. Uh, they didn't really believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels or demons. Uh, they had a very bizarre theology where the Pharisees believed in all of that stuff. So the fact that Matthew mentions Sadducees is important because after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Sadducee party dissolved and didn't exist anymore because Rome had basically said, we're done with you, we're destroying your city, and there was no political gain to be made for these guys anymore. Sadducees ceased to exist after the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. So why would Matthew mention Sadducees so many times, and and in Matthew 22 have Jesus arguing against Sadducees and against their theology? It, it's it's pointless unless Sadducees were still around when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Also in Matthew 12:7, uh, Jesus is being questioned about why uh, he's breaking the Sabbath and why his disciples are you know p- picking grains of wheat on the Sabbath and eating them. And then Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Remember that? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, This Old Testament passage might have been chosen because uh, Jesus is is making the point that sacrifice isn't the most important thing. Mercy is is more important. And the Pharisees were showing zero mercy to him or his disciples. Plus, they were way out of line because it was all these man-made rules about the Sabbath they were breaking, not the God-given rule about the Sabbath they were breaking. You remember Jesus says, was the was man made for the Sabbath or was the Sabbath made for man, right? And uh, uh, the, the Pharisees were, were grilling them with this idea, but it doesn't make a lot of sense for Jesus to quote Hosea 6.6 about, I desire mercy more than sacrifice, If the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system wasn't happening anymore, right? Matthew wouldn't waste space explaining that concept to a people who couldn't even sacrifice. It only makes sense if the temple was still uh, up and still functional uh, with sacrifices. So these are some internal reasons. We think that it was written early on and we think that it was written by eyewitnesses. Now, there are other people who kind of go through the book of Acts and do a similar thing with the book of Acts, saying that it had to have been written between 60 or 62 AD because of these factors. And I'm going to blitz through these a little bit, uh, but they are interesting. Um, uh, One author, uh, Colin Hemmer, he says there's no mention in Acts of the fall of Jerusalem in 70. That would have been a monumental thing Luke would have recorded if it had happened. He doesn't mention it. Why? Because he probably finished his book before it happened. Um, There's no... there's no hint of, of the, the animosity that was growing between Christians and the Roman Empire, especially with Nero. Remember, Nero started persecuting Christians like crazy and, and covering them in tree sap and lighting them on fire to burn as torches at his dinner parties, throwing them to the lions. Like, There's no mention of any of that kind of thing in the book of Acts. Why? Well, it probably hadn't happened yet which makes us think that it was in the early 60s the book got completed because by the late 60s, Nero was persecuting Christians like crazy. There's another thing that's not mentioned in the book of Acts, and it is the death of James, the brother of Jesus. He died about 62, and this is recorded in many non-Christian books, Histories. Uh, Josephus talks about this in Antiquities of the Jews. Um, Eusebius talks about it. Who was a Christian? There's there's others. And why didn't Luke mention the death of the head of the church in Jerusalem? Makes no sense. Well, if he hadn't died before the book was completed, it makes sense. Which means Acts was written early on. Um, there's a lot of other things. I just want to mention a couple more that are interesting about the book of Acts. Um, um, the actions, um, of, uh, the action of the book of Acts, if you read Acts again, it's hard for, for, I know many of our listeners are Christians and we're familiar with the book, but if you read it kind of trying to take a fresh perspective and, and kind of zoom out and just say, okay, what's going on here? It really ends weird. <laughs> if you, if you read it, it doesn't like conclude or anything, right? It's an odd place to end the book. Um, if, Time had passed, and Paul had been martyred, and Peter had been martyred, and there was persecution of the Jews, and there was the temple destroyed. It kind of ends abruptly and doesn't mention some of these cataclysmic events for Christianity, which again lends itself to probably was written before 70, before the late 60s, probably around 60 or 62. So we think that these were eyewitness reports and that they were early based on these internal Uh, evidences. Now, I want to get into a a little bit deeper uh, argument for internal evidence that I find fascinating. And this is what's called undesigned coincidences. Undesigned coincidences. And the idea is this, that the books of the New Testament reinforce each other in such a way that rules out the possibility of them being made up. It screams eyewitness testimony. People who were actually at these events recorded them because of how when they are all telling the same story, the details interlock and make sense of each other. Now, let me read to you some of these, and then you'll start to see uh, what I mean. Um, in Matthew fourteen one through 2, it says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay? The question we want to ask here is how did Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, know what King Herod said to his servants? Right? Is he just making this up? Is this just a myth? Or did he actually know what was said? Well, can we figure it out from other passages in Scripture? Do we have to just make up a story or an explanation? Or does the text let us know? If you go to Luke 8, 3, you get the answer. Let me read this to you. It says, Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. Do you get that? Herod's steward's wife was a companion of Jesus and the disciples early on in the ministry. Is that possibly how Matthew knows what Herod said to his servants? Because one of Herod's servants' wives was part of Jesus' disciple group. Totally makes sense, right? Now, this is the thing. Luke reinforces what Matthew says about knowing what Herod was thinking and saying to his servants. If you were fabricating these books, details like that wouldn't interlock and explain each other and make things more clear that's the point. When you're at a crime scene and you have people who are actual eyewitnesses of an accident, right? Even if they're standing on different corners, their perspectives are different, but they're at the same event. Now, one may tell you a detail that the other one doesn't, but sometimes police officers get details that sound bizarre from one person, but when the other tells it from their perspective, It makes sense of the weird details. That's what we find all throughout the New Testament. They interlock in such a way as eliminates the idea that they're made-up stories. They have kernels of historical accuracy in them based on the undesigned coincidences. I want to show you another one. This is really interesting. So this is from Luke 9, 35 through 36. This is when uh, Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, right? And he's transfigured, and they see... Him in his glory. It says, Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Okay, a couple of things here. You see Jesus transfigured into his glory. Moses shows up and is hanging out. Elijah shows up and is hanging out. And you're Peter and you see all this, and you don't go tell the other nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain what you saw, why wouldn't you go tell them? This is bizarre. The other thing that's weird about this in Luke is, how did Luke find out about it if they didn't tell anybody? Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But let's read Mark chapter 9, verse 9. Mark 9, 9 says, as they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Oh, that makes sense why they didn't tell anybody, because Jesus gave them a command not to tell anybody. Luke tells us that they obeyed a command that we're not told about. Mark tells us the command, but it doesn't tell us that they obeyed this screams authentic this makes sense of two differing eyewitness reports coming together and making a clear making clear a big picture right so mark helps us clarify luke this one i love and john 6 4 through 5 it says now the passover the feast of the jews was near therefore jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming uh coming to him said to blank he says to one of his disciples i'm not going to tell you who it is jesus says where are we to buy breads so that these people may eat okay so who do you think the disciple is that jesus asks where they can get food from now you might think well Peter's and you know a natural candidate because jesus talks to peter a lot james and john are mentioned a lot this is the you know gospel of john maybe it was john well, it's not Peter. It's not James. It's not John. <clears throat> well, maybe it's uh, Matthew. Nope, it's not Matthew. Uh, maybe it's Judas because he was the money keeper. It's not Judas. Do you know who is mentioned and who Jesus asks where they should buy food? Philip. Philip. Now, let me ask you a question, you churchgoers out there. How much do you know about the disciple Philip? Not Philip the Evangelist from Acts. That's a different guy the disciple Philip, how much do you know about him? I'll tell you how much. Not much, because he's hardly ever mentioned. So if John is making up this story, why does he throw some obscure disciple into the mix that Jesus would have asked? Why? We actually have to look at two different passages that will make sense of this situation. This is fascinating. We go to Luke 9, 10-11. It says when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So Luke tells us the location of this event, that it's in the city called Bethsaida. Look at John 12, 20 through 21. So we've got Jesus... Asks Philip where to buy bread. Luke tells us that the location they were in with this situation is Bethsaida, and then in John twelve twenty through twenty one, you kind of have this throwaway statement that wraps the whole thing together. Listen to this: John twelve twenty through twenty one. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. John 12, 20-21 tells us Philip's from Bethsaida. John 6, 4-5, we have Jesus asking Philip where to get food, and Luke tells us they're in Bethsaida when that happens. It makes sense to ask the guy who's from the town you're at where you buy food. You see, these details interlock and they scream eyewitness testimony. How could you fabricate this kind of a scenario, right? Do you know the genius it would take to weave these things together in these different accounts of the Gospels? I don't know if it could be done. I don't know if it could be done. Another one, Luke 23, 2 through 4. This one is just bizarre. This is when Jesus is being tried, you know, and being uh, convicted to be crucified. The Jews bring him to Pilate, and it says this, uh, Luke 23, 2 through 4. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Why no guilt? Claiming to be Caesar is a big time crime. Uh, One of the reasons Pilate was in Jerusalem is to make sure there's no insurrections happening, that there's no uprising, that there's no rebellious militia forming to fight against the Roman Empire, because that kind of had been the MO of the Jewish people for a long time. So the Jews bring this guy and say, he's saying not to pay taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be the real king. Uh, Pilate wouldn't just be like, Are you the king? And Jesus says, Yeah, I'm the king. And he's like, I don't see what the big deal is. No, this is a huge deal. This makes zero sense in Luke. But if we read John, it clarifies it. Let me read to you a little bit of John 18, 33 through 38. It says, Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. This makes sense of Luke. We just don't have all of the dialogue, right? But Jesus tells Pilate, Listen, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, we would be fighting. We would be rebelling. We would be forming militia. My disciples would be storming your gates. But that's not my purpose. So Pilate's like, oh, he's some religious fanatic. He's some new age philosopher. Like the, he's not claiming to be Caesar and he's going to conquer and take back Jerusalem for, for himself, right? So Pilate's like, this, I don't see what this guy's guilty of. Like what you're trying to say he's guilty of isn't what he's doing. It makes sense of Luke's account because we have more of the details. It interlocks and it clarifies uh, the story, which makes us believe these were eyewitness accounts from different perspectives. Another one, now I think this is interesting, this one moves from uh, a gospel to an epistle. <clears throat> Uh, Again, Mark has these like bizarre (laughs) details in it that don't fit. Like we said, like about the the young man who fleed naked, right? Here's another one that seems to be so inappropriate for where it's at. Let me read to you, Mark 15, 21. So this is uh, Jesus is being led out of the city. He's carrying his cross to Golgotha. You remember he passes out and he can't carry his cross anymore, right? So this is like a real serious portion of the gospel of Mark. And in Mark fifteen twenty one it says this, Jesus passes out and they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Okay. Time out. I understand that they he's recording and there was this guy there who they made carry the cross the rest of the way. And he even gives us the detail of the guy's name. But why does he tell us, Who his kids are. It's it's bizarre. It's like out of place. He's like, oh, you know, the, the dad of Alexander and Rufus. Like, man, this is a serious portion of your gospel. Seems to be a really inappropriate parenthetical note. What are you doing, Mark? Why does this matter? Why does he mention Alexander and Rufus? What is he trying to communicate to his readers by saying that? Well, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark from Rome. Okay, so that's important. Uh, under the guidance of Peter, this is the gospel of Peter as according to John Mark, and he's in Rome. Well, when we read Romans 16, 13, which was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, at the end of the letter, uh, Paul, like in a lot of his letters, he's given shout outs to people like, hey, greet this person, say hi to this person, thank this person, right? And at the end of Romans sixteen thirteen, he says... Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Mark mentions Simon of Cyrene had a son named Rufus, and he's acting like his readers should know who that is. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans, where Mark was when he wrote his gospel, he says there's this guy Rufus there. It seems like what Mark was doing was he was helping the Roman people, the Roman Christians, to understand that it was Rufus' dad who helped carry Jesus' cross. He's mentioning a significant detail to them. This makes zero sense unless it's not pertinent to the audience he's writing to. But again, Romans helps us to understand and clarify the Gospel of Mark. Another one that I want to point out is in Galatians one eighteen. So Paul's kind of given his uh, conversion story, and he talks about how after he was converted and uh, he went away to Arabia, uh, it then talks about how he went up to Jerusalem to meet with uh, James and John and and Peter. And I want to read to you his firsthand account of this. Again, um, the atheistic scholars believe Paul actually wrote Galatians, so they, they admit this is eyewitness testimony of this event. Galatians 1.18 <laughs> Paul says, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. Okay, time out. 15 days sounds sweet, right? A two-week vacation is nice. That's a long period of time to stay in our context. But back then, if you look at how long Paul stayed other places, you know, he'd go for 18 months, half a year, a year. He stayed a long period of time. Why does he only stay with Peter for 15 days? It's a very short visit considering how much travel was involved to get to Jerusalem for Paul. Why such a short visit? Well, when we read about this uh, chronologically in in the book of Acts, we are informed as to why. Acts 9, 26-30 says, When uh, Paul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Oh, that makes sense why he only stayed for 15 days, because there were people trying to kill him, and so the Christians smuggled him out of town and sent him away. Acts makes sense of what Paul says in Galatians. On and on and on. We see all of these interlinking details in the epistles and in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And what they show is that these books were written by people who were actually there at the time, because otherwise you would not have all of these interlocking details. And uh, I don't have time to go through all of them. There's tons and tons and tons of these throughout the New Testament. Um, But these help us, I think, to see that uh, these were written by eyewitness accounts. Now, There is a point I want to make with the undesigned coincidence portion. Number one, how could a group of men fabricate these coincidences? Do you know what would have to go into them doing this On purpose, right? They would have to say, okay, Luke would say, hey, I'm writing about this and I'm gonna leave this detail hanging, but I would really like for you to wrap it up with a nice bow when you write your epistle or you write your gospel, right? And then they'd have to all work together to interweave all these details together. How could people do that, right? It would have been so difficult to do, but let's just pretend that they did it that they purposely interwove all these details. These people would have to be extreme geniuses. They would have to be so talented in order to do that, right? But the thing I can't believe is this. If they were that brilliant as to interweave these things and to do that, why would they also be so humble as to not draw attention to their own genius? It doesn't make any sense they would have told you how brilliant they were they would have wanted you to make sure you saw the genius of the interweaving of details together and they don't ever mention it what I think happened is that they were actually there and when you record actual events that you saw and another friend does from a different perspective and another friend who was there does these kinds of things interlock and work themselves out because you guys all actually were there and you all did experience the event. This is the kind of thing that that police officers, detectives look for in eyewitness reporting. When these details like that interlock together, they believe the people were actually there. And that's what we have in the New Testament. I believe that this is huge internal evidence that screams these are eyewitness reports. Now again, we didn't even get into the geographical accuracy of the book of Acts and the cities that they mentioned that have all been uncovered and how we're finding the little details they mentioned to be accurate and true, even the depth of the ocean uh, as uh, Luke records it when they're on seafaring journeys. I mean, there's so many other internal details that help us to build the case that these were written by eyewitnesses. But today I wanted to show you that they claimed to be eyewitnesses, that there was anonymity for protection, that there were a whole bunch of embarrassing accounts throughout the New Testament, that uh, a lot of the New Testament had to have been written prior to 70 AD because it doesn't mention the events that would have been horrific, and that a lot of the, the stuff about the temple and the Sadducees makes zero sense if they don't exist making us believe that they were written before. And on top of that, you have all these undesigned coincidences, these little details that make sense and interlock together to give us a clear picture that I don't believe could be fabricated. I think that this is a good cumulative case to say most probably eyewitnesses wrote these books. We know that they had many independent sources, that they were early reports, and I believe that this shows they were written by eyewitnesses. Now, it doesn't mean that the supernatural things recorded are true. It doesn't prove that. So we, we have to be careful of what our arguments are arguing for. But it does prove that the people who wrote it were there during the events they supposedly recorded, and that they tried to be accurate with a lot. And we can see that from the interlocking details. So next week, we're going to continue in our uh, series, and we're going to talk about non-Christian sources that back up what the New Testament says. Because if your enemy is agreeing with you, the events that you agree on probably happened. So we're going to get into the non-Christian sources from the same time period that discuss the events of the New Testament. But hey, thanks so much for being with us today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Uh, I love doing this show. I miss Tyler. It's always funny to do it, you know, by yourself, staring at a camera, talking in a room all alone, and uh, not feeling crazy. But I'm glad that you're out there. I'm glad that you're listening. And uh, I hope this has been an encouragement to you that the New Testament's legitimate, you guys. It's very trustworthy, and there's a lot of different reason and, and um, arguments and evidences for why it is a trustworthy book. And we can have confidence that what it says is real. So we're going to continue talking about this next week. But thank you so much for being with us today on Christ Culture and Coffee. Again, go check out Black Rifle Coffee Company. Really good stuff. And if you would, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. If you're just a listener, it would still help us if you would go subscribe to us on YouTube because we're trying to build that platform. Share these uh episodes with your friends. Let other people know about what we're doing. If this ministry has been a benefit to you, we just ask that you would promote us and share it with other people so that we can equip Christians to be confident in their faith and to be able to share their faith seriously with a culture that needs to know who Jesus is and needs to know they're loved and needs to know there's hope and there's purpose in this life, even when things seem crazy. So please share us with, with your friends, your family, your church, uh we're very excited about what we're doing uh, the next few weeks. But thank you so much for being with me today on Christ Culture and Coffee and we'll catch you guys on next week's episode. Thanks for listening to Christ Culture and Coffee. If you liked this episode, please rate, review and subscribe to help us reach more people.